0: Day today, I invite you, as we continue in worship, to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. John, chapter 5. As we continue in our exposition through John's Gospel, we pick up again this morning, I want to focus... Uh, given what we, the text we covered last week, I want to kind of home in and focus on verse 25. But for the sake of remembering and getting the context, let's read from verse 25 through verse 30 together. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. This is the word of God. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself, and has given Him authority to execute judgment also, because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Amen. Let's unite our hearts and pray together as we come to the preaching of the Word. Let's, let's pray. Father, what an appropriate time for us to give You thanks and praise for all of Your goodness. We thank You, Father, for the many temporal blessings that You shower upon all creation. You cause the rain to fall and the sun to shine upon both the just and the unjust. And how many good things You have given to Your people. Father, we thank You that it is You who has forgiven all of our sins, heals all of our diseases. You are the One who is patient in all of our affliction, yet You reveal to us the comforts of Christ and being a Christian. Father, we as Your people praise You this morning that You have caused us to be in Christ. That You have caused us who were dead to hear the voice of the Son of God and to live. Father, we pray that we would never take for granted your kindness and your pity for your children. That you took us being lovers of darkness and dead in trespasses and sins, and you gave us a new heart solely according to your grace and your sovereign purpose and timing, and you made us new creations. We thank you, Father, that you have not dealt with us as our sins deserve. And we pray, Father, that this morning we would rejoice in our hearts over the simple yet profound blessing of knowing that we are in Christ. That we will be held and kept in Christ by Your power until that great day of judgment when we will arise victorious as Christ's people unto the resurrection of life. Draw near to us, we pray. Father, we pray for any who are here who are strangers to the Gospel, who are not believing in Christ's life and death and resurrection for the forgiveness of their sins, we pray that You would bring them conviction of sin, that You would bring to them a fear of judgment, and that You would lead them by Your Spirit to embrace savingly the Word of Christ, that they would cast their souls upon Him, that they would venture upon Him and venture upon Him wholly and solely. Draw near to us, we pray. Send your Holy Spirit to minister to us through your Word. We ask these things in Christ's name, Amen. Well, we pick up again this morning in John chapter five, which you remember is uh, our Lord Jesus giving his public defense, as it were. He's been charged by the Jews for breaking the Sabbath when he healed this uh, this uh, invalid. And as He gave His defense and put forth His equality with the Father, He is now being persecuted not only for breaking the Sabbath, but for, in their view, being a blasphemer. And last week, we focused on verses 22 and 23, and then 26-30, through uh, in which we considered Christ as the judge of all the world. And in our text this morning, I want us to consider Christ the giver of spiritual life. And as I said, I want to focus simply on verse 25. And so, let's begin with our exposition, and then we'll turn to our doctrine, and then finally our application. But let's begin with exposition. And I do encourage you, if you have your Bible at this point, to have it open to the text itself so that you can follow along and see for yourself what God is teaching us here. Verse 25, Jesus says to these Jewish leaders who are calling Him to give an account, He says to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, I just want to make my colors plain and make, make something clear at the beginning in terms of how I'm approaching this text. I agree with the general consensus of interpreters That in verse 25 and in verse 28, Jesus is speaking of two distinct types of resurrections. Okay? So I would suggest to you that in verse 25, he is speaking of spiritual resurrection from spiritual deadness, and then in verse 28 and 29, he's speaking of physical resurrection at the end of the age. And I'm going to give you three reasons for why I think we should understand it that way. Okay, just three brief reasons. Number 1 is that in verse 28, I'm going to kind of have you bouncing back and forth between verse 25 and verse 28, okay? Number 1 is that in verse 28 he speaks of those who are in the graves coming out, while in verse 25 he simply speaks of the dead which is often used figuratively in the Scriptures to refer to spiritual deadness as well as physical deadness. But reason number two, notice in verse uh, 28, His voice, the voice that is heard on that final day is universally heard. It says all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth. In other words, there is not a single person in this second resurrection who hears the Son's voice and does not rise. However, notice in verse 25, he says, "...the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live." So if you remember verse 24 from last week, just as in verse 24, when Jesus said to them, Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me, when he says, Whoever hears my word, he doesn't just mean there, Whoever hears with their eardrum, but this is rather a spiritual saving type of hearing. That the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who truly hear with an ear that can hear will be saved. But thirdly, the third reason, and this is perhaps the most obvious and most persuasive one, is there's an important time difference. Notice in verse 28, he says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming, implying that this hour is still in the future. The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. But in verse 25, he says, The hour is coming and now is. That's very significant. In other words, from the the time of Jesus' own ministry and speaking these words, this first resurrection that He's speaking of is an already present reality. Those who are spiritually dead are hearing the voice of the Son of God not merely with their physical ear, but by the quickening power of the Spirit of God, they are being raised to newness of life by the Son of God. Okay. So, having clarified at the beginning what kind of resurrection Jesus has in view here, I now want us to open up still in our exposition section. I want us to open up two important points from this verse. <coughs> two important <coughs> Excuse me. Two important points from this verse. Number 1 is this. It's significant that the Lord Jesus here describes humanity with the word dead. <coughs> Excuse me, give, give me a moment. Um, still recovering from a cough apparently. Um, it's significant that He describes humanity here, humanity here with the word dead. He says the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God signifying to us in that word the inability of natural man on his own to make his way towards the Kingdom of God. Right? This is the same line of thought as we saw in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. When Jesus taught the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, you must be what? Born again. If you're even to see the Kingdom of God. He doesn't say to Nicodemus, you need reformation or you need healing, or you need to be pointed in the right direction, He says to him, you need an entirely new principle of life imparted to you. From above. From heaven. By the Spirit of God. And it's this view of fallen man that's not only is it biblical, but it's this view that supremely magnifies the grace of God in the Gospel. But it is certainly not a, it's certainly a truth that has not gone without being contested throughout the history of the church. Augustine, from fairly early on in the early church, Augustine battled Pelagius. Uh, Pelagius denied original sin. He came along and he asserted that we're not born into a state of sin and spiritual deadness, but rather we're born into a state like Adam's before his fall. In order, we're born into a state of innocence. And Pelagius argued that we're not born inclined to evil. We're certainly not enslaved to evil. But rather, he argued, if God commands us to do good and if He commands us to believe on Christ, then certainly that implies that we have the ability to do so. Well, Pelagianism didn't just go away. Later on, During the time of the Reformation, Roman Catholics appealed to the Lord's parable of the Good Samaritan and the man who was left half dead by the robbers. And they used that parable to say that that's what natural man is like. Yes, he's sick. Yes, he's he's not in a good condition. But there does still remain in him this glimmer of life this island of righteousness by which if he chooses, he may seek and find God. But brothers and sisters, my friend, such views just don't do justice to the language of the Bible. And such views detract from the extravagance of the grace of God to sinners. There is no room in the scriptures for the idea that there remains in fallen man this island of righteousness, this glimmer of life by which he may seek on his own and find God. But rather, the scriptures assert exactly the opposite. For instance, I'll I'll take you to several of these texts. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we'll jump in at verse 10. This is the section where Paul has said that we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are unjust before God. And he gives this list of quotations of descriptions of the natural man, whether they be Jew or Gentile. And in verse 10, he says, None is righteous, no, not one. Verse 11. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That's very important. That's either true or it's not true. Men either do seek for God or they do not. Verse 12, no one does good, not even one. Or jump down to verse 18. There is how much fear of God before their eyes? There is none. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 7 and 8. This is where Paul elaborates, if you will, on what he's just said in chapter 3 about no one doing good. Romans 8, verse 7, he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh, that is the carnal man, the man who is still in the flesh and not in the spirit, he says, The mind that is set on the flesh is what? Hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So Paul says it's not merely an issue of they just don't submit to God. He says there's this inability they cannot submit to God. He finishes in verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now think about the implications of that. If, If sinners can repent on their own, or if they can, believe in Christ on their own, would that not certainly be something that would be pleasing to God? Right? Repentance and faith are certainly things that please God. And yet, Paul says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In other words, before someone can do anything pleasing to God, he must first be made alive spiritually by the Spirit. Turn back to the Gospel of John. Turn to chapter 6. Chapter 6. We'll traffic a lot more in these things in in the coming chapter when we get to chapter 6. But I just want to point out a couple verses that are very significant. These these are from Jesus' own words in total agreement with Paul. When Jesus says things like He does in verse 44 of chapter 6, when He says to the crowds, no one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. Now understand what Jesus means there. When Jesus says no one can come to Me, He doesn't mean no one is allowed to come to Me. Okay? He actually pleads with them, you ought to come to Me so that you may have life. He doesn't mean they're not allowed to come to Me. He means that left to themselves, like a dead corpse, they... Cannot and will not come to him for life. And we'll open up more of what that inability means in our section, our doctrine section. And later on in chapter 6, just in order, in case there was any confusion about what he meant by that statement, look at verse 65. When the crowds are grumbling at this point at his words, they say, This is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And they're about to walk away from him for good. Jesus says this to them in verse 65. He says, this is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted him by the Father. In other words, He's saying the reason you are grumbling at My Word and rejecting Me is because it has not been granted to you to come by My Father, and if it is not granted to you by My Father, you remain by default What chapter 3, verse 19 says. You remember chapter 3, verse 19, that men by nature are lovers of darkness. This is how Jesus describes us. We are dead. And yet, that's not the end of the story. That brings us to the second thing I want to open up under our exposition. our, Our last thing in our exposition section. Not only are we taught of the deadness of men, we're taught of the glorious grace of God's resurrecting power to sinners. He says, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Brothers and sisters, that's a glorious. That's one of those statements that we shouldn't let become common to us that is a glorious promise of redemption and salvation. And we ought to praise God that there are such words as those in the Bible. And praise God that it doesn't just say that God decreed to leave all men in their state of deadness and condemnation. But rather, it says, the hour is coming and now is when God will make sinners alive. Not that God making sinners alive was absent in the Old Testament. That's not the point. But in Christ, the hour dawned in which salvation from sin and judgment was blown wide open, as it were. And the era of worldwide salvation to both Jew and Gentile was inaugurated. Just as he told the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, he said, "Woman." the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, that worship will only happen because this hour has come in which Christ will send His Word and His Spirit abroad. And notice he says that this hour was not just something present in his day, but he says that it is also, from his perspective, still to come. That's a prophecy of the church age and the church being built. And Christians, still in our day, we are living in that hour. Still, the voice of Christ is going forth. And sinners from every tribe and tongue and people and nation are being made alive in Christ Jesus. Now, how does this resurrection come, come about? Well, notice it's inextricably Related to the voice of the Son of God. He says, the, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, what does he mean by the voice of the Son of God? Well, I think there's a couple of things. One is very obvious. He's just made it plain in verse 24. When he says, Whoever hears my word, right? The voice of the Son of God is the Word of His Gospel. It's the Word of His apostles, His prophets. It's the Word that declares to sinners the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Right? Romans 10.17 Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. And so that's the first aspect, I think, of what he needs is that necessary for anyone to be brought to spiritual life is the hearing of the Word or the voice of the Son of God. And yet, we know, and I think it's implied in this text and it's made explicit elsewhere, that there's more to the voice of Christ than merely the external Word of the Gospel. Right? The, the external Word must be heard. But as Jesus has said, men are dead. Right? And dead men don't hear. That's why we need not only the external word, but we need life. Like verse 26 says, Jesus says that in Himself is life. And according to verse 21, He already said that He gives life to whom He will. In other words, in addition to the external Word of the Gospel landing on the ears of the sinner, there's also an effectual internal work of Christ opening the heart to believe the Word. Like Luke writes in Acts 16 about Lydia, when Paul is preaching to her and it says that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. That's the internal effectual working of Christ by His Spirit to raise His people to spiritual life and to hear His Word. Calvin said this. He said, "...the grace of resurrection is conferred on us by the Gospel, not that so much energy is possessed by the external voice, which in many cases strikes the ear to no purpose, but because Christ speaks to our hearts within by His Spirit." That's what Paul describes in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. Very well-known verses. When Paul says, after telling us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of the devil, he says, "...but God, being rich in mercy..." because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Notice that phrase, even when we were dead. Why does Paul add that? He adds that because he wants to emphasize and remind us, you were dead when God did this. You were not the one who initially took the initiation and the action towards this. This is something God did to you. God acted upon us in an internal way to make us alive to see the glories of Christ. This is the drawing that Jesus speaks of in John chapter 6 that we'll see when we get there. This drawing that is not something the Father does for all. It's a drawing that doesn't just, it doesn't merely just bring all men to a place of neutrality where they can either choose or not choose Christ, but rather it's an effectual drawing by which the Father sees to it that all of His people with certainty come to Christ. Jesus describes it this way in John 6.45. He says, It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught of God. And then He says, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Me. That's what's going on when God is making a sinner new and alive. It's an inward persuasion by means of a moral transformation in which the Father teaches us as it were to embrace His Son. This is is the wonderful reality that Jesus is declaring to them. That not only is He the judge of all mankind, but He is the the life-giving Savior to all of His people. And though these leaders be ever so hostile to Him, He will not fail to give life to whom He wills and bring His people from death to life. Now, that brings us to our our doctrine this morning. That's our exposition. Something of what what the text means. Let's turn our attention to doctrine and then to application. Doctrine, how are we instructed by these things? How ought we to to further understand these things? And I again have two things that I want to open up just briefly together. And they have to do with those two points we dealt with in our exposition. First of all, I'd like to open up this idea of men being by nature spiritually dead. Okay, I want to further explore this and clarify and open some things up. Specifically, I think there is much potential for misunderstanding with this doctrine. When someone says that men and women are spiritually dead and cannot come to Christ apart from a working of the Holy Spirit, it raises many questions. For instance, one question is, if men are dead as you say, And if they are unable to seek God, then how is it just for God to command us to do something that you say we cannot do? Right? And then there's a second question that follows from that. Are we really culpable and responsible for not coming to God when the Scriptures say that we couldn't even do it on our own? Right? Those are good questions. And those are questions that deserve good biblical answers. And Christian, we need to be able to explain those things and reason with people from the Scriptures of what we mean and what we do not mean. First of all, let me start with this. When the Scriptures describe natural man, and when I say natural man, I mean apart from the saving grace of God in Christ. When the Scriptures describe us as spiritually dead, it does not mean that we are not volitional creatures with real desires and real wills that make real decisions. Okay? So I'll give you a Calvin quote, and I've chosen Calvin on purpose because he's the guy who gets a bad rap, right? Calvin doesn't believe that we're really people, right? Calvin said, quote, I readily in fact he said this in his commentary on our text this morning. He said, quote, I readily acknowledge that in the soul of man there remains some remnant of life. Okay? And he goes on to explain what he means. He says, "...for understanding, judgment, and will, and all of our senses are so many parts of life." Okay? So, Calvin is saying that obviously men, including fallen men, are still living, breathing, thinking, willing agents. And all of those abilities and faculties are owing to God giving us natural life and ability. Right? Right? But then he goes on and he says this. He says, quote, "But as there is no part of us which rises to the desire of the heavenly life." He says, "We need not wonder if the whole man so far as relates to the kingdom of God is accounted dead." In other words, Calvin is saying and I would add he's being biblical here, he's saying that this deadness, this inability of man consists not in the absence of desire or willing, but it consists in the fact that all of our desires and all of our willing are desires for the wrong thing. When this, this is very important. When the Scriptures speak of us being unable to come to God, we ought not to imagine for a moment that it is God who is preventing sinners from come, coming to Him and that's why we don't come. But rather, we so desire sin and evil, and we are slaves to sin and evil, that we cannot desire that which is holy and good. Okay? That, that's very important to explain to people. Because sometimes when people hear, for instance, a Calvinistic interpretation of the Bible, and we we do like to emphasize things like no one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. But sometimes people hear us say things like that and they they're thinking and they're imagining that we believe in a God who is actively keeping people out of the Kingdom of God even though they're just begging, Lord, please grant Me entrance. Right? As though Jesus is saying, I know there are... Tons of you who want to believe in Me. You want to enter the Kingdom of God. But I'm sorry, for many of you, it has just not been granted to you by the Father. That is not at all what we are saying. That would assume, first of all, that men desire the things of God. And it overlooks the fact that the Bible says that man's default is to hate God. Right, turn back to John chapter 3. Look at verse 19 and 20. John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. John writes, or or Jesus, depending on where you think the quotation ends. It says, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. Okay, now that's a reference to Christ, right? Christ is the light of the world. He has come into the world. Now, what does John say following that? Does he say, this is the the condemnation, that men really loved the light and desired the light, but God prevented them from coming to the light? No, that's not what he says. He says, this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men what loved darkness rather than light. Because their deeds are evil. Verse 20, For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Now, brothers and sisters, from that text, upon whom is the responsibility laid for why people do not come to Christ? It's placed upon sinners. Right? And their love of darkness. We need to understand that. Fallen man, in God's common grace, still has reason. He still has a conscience. He still has the ability to act upon what he desires so, such that he evaluates infor- information and he chooses or refuses as he sees fit. No one is denying that. The problem is that man by nature has an irresistible bias towards evil. Because his nature is evil, his thinking is evil, and his desires are evil. Because of our fall in Adam. The reason we do not willingly come to Christ is because we don't want Christ. I've given this example before. I was talking to a few of you. We talked through this a week a week ago or so. Think about a lion. Take the example of a lion. If you place before a hungry lion a nice piece of raw steak, and then right next to that raw steak, you place in front of that lion a a big bowl of caprese salad, what is that lion going to go for? Ten times out of ten, that lion is going to go for that steak, isn't he? Why? After all, wasn't he free to eat the salad if he wanted? Of course he was free but he didn't eat the salad because he didn't want the salad. Right? Carnivores do what they do by nature, and that is to desire meat. And the same thing is true with sinful man. Because our natures are corrupt and fallen, when, we, when you place before the sinner, on the one hand, the option of Christ and holiness and purity, And on the other hand, you place before Him sin and unrighteousness and evil. Fallen man, apart from the grace of God, will choose sin every time. Because we love darkness and prefer it to the light. Such that we cannot come to Christ until until God by His free grace renews our nature and gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. And that brings us to our second point of doctrinal instruction. We're instructed secondly in this text regarding the gracious nature of regeneration. The gracious nature of regeneration. Think about Jesus' words again. He says, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Now you think about that, in one sense, that's interesting language, isn't isn't it? Because dead people don't hear. But just as he will go on in verses 28 and 29 to tell us how on the last day dead bodies will hear supernaturally the voice of the Son of God to be raised physically from the grave, so also this spiritual resurrection is a work of divine grace bringing them to spiritual life. Christian, think about it. And this is dovetailing with with our application. To hear the voice of the Son of God with ears to hear. And to hear the voice of the Son of God with a heart that believes is the greatest blessing you have ever received in this life. And I want you, Christian, to feel the gracious nature of this gift. It's been assumed by everything I've said thus far and we've seen about the nature of man, but I want to make it explicit. Many Christians understand well, I'll say this. All Christians to some degree realize how gracious God is. But as we grow and we mature in our thinking and our understanding of theology and God's Word, that appreciation, the measure of that appreciation, continues in the Christian life to grow deeper and deeper. So for instance, at the beginning of the Christian life, every Christian is aware that the fact that my, the forgiveness of my sins is a reality... That They're aware that the fact that I'm being sanctified by Christ, that I have an inheritance that is stored up for me, they realize that is all because of the grace of God. But sometimes Christians don't realize how far back that grace goes. It's certainly true that all the benefits we receive from Christ after trusting Him are nothing but grace upon grace. But what the Scriptures teach us is that even the gift of faith To receive those blessings is itself a gift that was secured by Christ for His people and applied to us by the Spirit of God when He raised us from the dead. We we sung in that hymn this morning. I can't remember if it's the second second or third stanza. It, It asks a question. Why was I made to hear His voice? and enter while there's room, while thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come." You ever ask yourself that question, Christian? That's a good question to ask. Why, Lord? Why, Lord, when the world is like the crowds in John 6 that are just walking away from the Lord Jesus, why is it that I am like the apostles who say, Lord, to whom shall we go? For You alone have the words of eternal life. Why? The next stanza answers the question. "'Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in." Or else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Christian, that is a glorious biblical truth. If it were not for the sweet drawing of God the Holy Spirit upon our hearts and our wills, we would still refuse to taste and be perishing in our sins. It's true, we came to Christ. That's what a a Christian is aware of the moment. They come to Christ. They they know I'm trusting Him. But as we grow deeper in our understanding, we realize, but I came to trust Him only because I was drawn sweetly by the cords of a divine and eternal love. A love that had absolutely nothing to do with my loveliness. But rather, a love that had everything to do with God's purpose to bring me to Christ in order to make me lovely. I've, I've told the story before. It's been a few months, so I think that's long enough to tell you again. It was John 3, so I don't know how... the beginning of John 3. So it's been almost, two, almost three whole chapters, okay? When I was a new Christian, absolutely, when this, this understanding of God's grace and my inability and my deadness in sin, when it first started to click and make sense, I, could, I remember very vividly tears of joy just uncontrollable bawling at the joy of what I realized God had done for me. Because I sat there and I, was, I could see in my mind's eye and I was picturing in my mind's eye old Kyle. Pre-Christian Kyle. And I could see myself and remember myself and all my rebellion. And what became so clear to me was this. There was not a bone in old Kyle's body that wanted God or was seeking God. I was running my hell-bound race and I was happy in it. I wasn't seeking refuge from sin. I wasn't afraid of where my sin would take me. And as this truth dawned on my heart and mind that if God had not intervened, I would either this moment or not too long in the distant future be in hell. That the reason I'm in Christ is because of the grace of God intervening in my life sovereignly. And to realize the words, the meaning of those words, but God being rich in mercy when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive. To realize that I'm in Christ because God changed me to want Christ when I didn't want Him. And I didn't ask Him to change me. He graciously gave me what I needed, not what I wanted. Christian, that's your story if you're a Christian. Whether you realize that or not, whether today is your first time th- even thinking about that, that is the dis- decisive thing that explains why you're in Christ and others are not. It wasn't your intelligence, it wasn't your abilities, your natural dispositions. You were flesh, just like the rest of mankind is flesh. You were dead. It was the sovereign choice of God's good pleasure to make you alive for his glory and his name's sake. Now, that brings us to our application as we make our way to a close. Application. I I just have one simple thing, fairly brief this morning. And I think it's a fitting application for this time of year. And it's simply this, Christian. In light of God's Word, in light of the Gospel, in light of this resurrection from spiritual death and life, Christian, give thanks to God. Give praise, the praise of your heart, sincere praise to God. This afternoon, ponder and meditate and thank God that not only has God decreed this hour that Jesus speaks of, that there is an hour in which those who are dead are being made alive. But more than that, Christian, rejoice that you are among their number who have been brought from spiritual deadness to spiritual life. Christian, your name is in the Lamb's book of life. Your eyes have been opened. Your ears have been unstopped. And while thousands around us still look upon the cross of Christ as foolishness and weakness, God has taught you and given you eyes to see in the cross the wisdom of God and the power of God. And Christian, honestly, in light of everything, doesn't matter what hardships, afflictions, trials you've experienced and will experience. In light of all of those things, is there anything more precious than to know God has placed me in His Son and I will never be taken out of His hand? Is there anything that should be more upon our lips to God in prayer than the simple prayer, thank You, Father, that I am a Christian? And though I often feel like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, who is constantly being, having to swim against the stream of the world and is constantly feeling the pull of the world to go back and they're calling me a fool and they think that I'm the, a pit, uh, the height of foolishness for being a Christian. And yet, when you think about it, we would never give it up for all the gold and silver in this world. The certainty of eternal life in Christ. Paul says to Timothy as we sing in that hymn, for I know in whom I have believed. I know Him in whom I have believed. I heard His Word and it landed upon upon me as what it really is, not the Word of man, but the Word of God. And I know that though He died in weakness and humiliation, and I also must endure this life of humiliation, Yet the Lord my Lord Jesus Christ rose to reign and he is returning to judge and I will be found on him that day as his friend and his brother and I shall reign with him I shall be vindicated with him I shall be glorified according to the likeness of his glory and all of that is true because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit purposed that I should be theirs. They not only spread the feast, as that hymn says, they not only spread the feast and invited me with words, but even when I was unwilling to come and still disinterested, they sweetly with power drew me in." Christian, be thankful to God tell others what god has done for your soul here's a very practical application that should flow out of our thanksgiving to god be a thankful person before the world speak to your children and your grandchildren about the blessedness of being a christian model what joy and peace and thanksgiving what peace and joy and thanksgiving there is being in christ Right? Don't be a grumbling Christian. Don't be a Christian that if someone looks at the totality of your life, they would, they would say it doesn't seem like their God makes that big of a difference in their life. They just grumble and complain just like the rest of us. Rather, live with the thanksgiving that my sin, as we sing in... Uh, what, what is it? Can't think of the title of the hymn now. It is well. There we go. It is well. Live out of the consciousness and belief of that line we sing and It is well with my soul of my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. O my soul. Christian, let us give thanks to God for His grace and His loving kindness to us as His people. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that You'd give us thankful hearts. We pray that You'd forgive us for how our hearts are not abounding with Thanksgiving the way they ought to be. Lord, we confess that part of our remaining corruption is that we, we don't recognize all of the many benefits that our God has given to us. We pray that, pray your forgiveness, Father, for our being slow to recognizing your mercies, for us taking for granted things that we ought not to. Lord, forgive us for allowing even the gospel to become common in our hearts where the truth of Christ crucified and risen for our redemption becomes to us at times, Father, like a thing that we've heard a thousand times and because we've heard it so many times, it doesn't land on us as it, the way it should. Forgive us, Father, and create within us renewed desires and affections that we would overflow and abound with thanksgiving, Father, cause us to think when hard providences are upon us, cause us to think of these simple things that we are in Christ, that we are secure in Him. That just as as we were placed in Christ by sovereign grace, we will be kept there by sovereign grace. Father, work these things in our hearts, we ask. We pray that You would bless our time a fellowship around a meal this afternoon. Pray that You would cause us to encourage one another in the Lord and in the Word of His grace. We pray for any who are here who don't know Christ. Father, draw them, we pray. We pray, send Your Spirit in power. Work in their hearts. Awaken them to their spiritual poverty and their great need of Christ. Help us, Father, we pray. Be with us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.